Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. It's Friday when we look back on the biggest local stories of the week in our Friday News Roundup. As a mayoral candidate, Lightfoot championed raising the real estate transfer tax on expensive homes to fund anti-homelessness and affordable housing efforts. But now Mayor Lightfoot reportedly wants to use that money to plug the city's $1 billion budget hole. New at 5 o'clock, a blockbuster report describes a culture of bullying and harassment at the office of House Speaker Mike Madigan. Educators go into the teaching profession because we're passionate about it. But we also want to be secure in knowing we'll be able to raise our own families and that our families will be secure. Joining us today are Crane Chicago reporter A.D. Quigg, Tribune reporter Bill Ruthhart, and Heather Sharon of The Daily Line. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot talked this week about a planned trip to Springfield. She'll go down there to talk to the governor and the legislature about helping the city fill an estimated $1 billion budget gap. Heather, exactly how will she make this pitch? We don't quite know what she's going to ask. We don't know how much, but it it seems certain um, that she will ask lawmakers in the veto session that will start in October to allow the city to levy a sales tax on services. Now, the mayor has said that she would target high-end services such as accountants or lawyers. And there are other things that she could ask for, as well as the ability to raise the real estate transfer tax. So when you buy or sell a home, you pay a percentage of that sale price to the city. And that could help fill what we expect to hear is about a $1 billion shortfall. Now, we're not quite sure what that deficit might entail. Does that include pay raises for teachers, cops, firefighters? So a lot of this is to be determined, but the mayor has been very clear that the city can't fill this gap on its own. Well, Bill, there's a Democratic supermajority in the House and Senate, but there has to be political will in Springfield for this to happen. Do you think Lightfoot has that. This will certainly be a test. I mean, one thing to keep in mind, this is she's asking for this in the veto session, right, which is in November. Uh, Typically, you get the budget passed through in uh, October. And, um, you know, I think some people are going to be asking, why didn't you ask for this stuff in the regular legislative session, right, right when you were coming into office? Uh, It was well documented that she didn't make any requests, knowing full well that there was a budget shortfall in the way. So it's not impossible. The uh, legislative numbers certainly help. But These types of things tend to get passed as part of larger packages where other communities around the state get some sort of funding as well. Uh, When it's just Chicago asking for something, it becomes a little more difficult just Mm -hmm. in lining up the votes. Well, and and we should say, while she didn't make the request, A.D., she has been very present in Springfield trying to build relationships there, perhaps in preparation for this ask. Yeah, and it's not only this. She's going to have to ask for some kind of uh, change to how the casino rollout will happen. Mm -hmm. We we also heard about last week this big casino report saying – uh, the current tax structure makes it not feasible. So she's going to kind of have to go back to the drawing board on that as well. I'm sure there will be some marijuana asks she might have. And there's going to be a lot on Springfield's plate in this veto session. I mean, Governor Pritzker got a lot done in that last one. Now it's all about implementation and these extra asks. And we don't even know what other downstate 
county officials and mayors might want out of this veto session as well. It's going to be busy. Well, if Mayor Lightfoot can't get Springfield behind this plan, Heather, what options are left open to her? So the city really has a limited ability to raise taxes. And if Springfield sort of, you know, rejects this application, I think the mayor is probably going to say, I don't have any choice but to raise property taxes. And that is going to be a difficult, difficult proposition for the city council to approve because let's not forget, Mayor Emanuel passed through the largest property tax increase in Chicago's history in 2015. People are finally paying the full freight of that now. And uh, it's going to be a really tough vote for many aldermen to raise that, especially because so many of them were elected promising money for progressive policies and programs. And this is just money that will sort of be swept up into the black hole of the city's pension debt, which is going to increase 30 percent starting uh, in 2020. And we're seeing that black hole you're mentioning, you know, become an issue for Mayor Lightfoot. Advocates for homeless residents in Chicago are saying, hey, this is this is, quote, business as usual. Uh, As you were on the campaign trail, there was a lot of talk about creating avenues for, you know, more resources for this issue we have in the city around homelessness bill. But the mayor here is kind of caught between a rock and the the black hole, Heather's <laughs> describing. Well, look, this is a classic example of the difference between campaigning and governing, right? Uh, all kinds of promises get made during campaigns. It's difficult to keep them all. This is point in case uh, you got to fill a budget deficit uh, here and there's few options to go to. Um, you know, there's a lot of I remember being at one campaign event uh, with Lightfoot and a few others where there was this laundry list of, uh, of uh, uh, ass a grassroots group made at a church on the west side. And they had to sign the board committing that they would do everything from increasing bus routes and all these, all these things that cost tens of, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Of course, they all signed it, right, because they're campaigning for mayor. Um, so, you know, when you get in there and you got you to gotta come up with the money, it's, it's a different story. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Uh, you know, it could be a way to find some additional money for homelessness, maybe not the amount that uh, those folks would would like to see out of the real estate transfer tax. Uh, I'm sure it's something that's definitely going to get addressed. Hmm. Well, A.D., I want you to talk a bit about Mayor Lightfoot's strategy in talking in the public about her, her plans. So she's done a little bit of um, preparing the city. We've been, I mean, on this show for months and months, we've been talking about mm-hmm. the mayor will have to get in there and fill this giant budget hole. But she has also tried to make a few strides in telling people that on the city side, we're trying to make a few cuts. So we've seen some announcements here and there. We found $4 million in efficiencies here. We're going to cash all these checks that have just been sitting in the state coffers. We're going to get $22 million there. Um, and she's also going to do this. First of all, this big State of the State of the Union budget address next week, and then followed by a bunch of town halls, where she'll ask people, "What can we cut? What do you want to see more of? What do you want to see less of?" In a way that I think she she campaigned against Emmanuel, saying he didn't go out into the community and gather input from folks. She's doing it slightly different in a way that she hopes will get buy-in for a lot of these tough decisions she's going to have to make. Well, it's interesting because before that 2015 massive property tax hike, Emmanuel held budget town hall meetings. He held three. And I was uh, remembering that, in fact, he had to be rushed from the stage because protesters um, took over the meeting, angry because he was trying to close Diet High School and they were on a hunger strike. In a really fun twist of Chicago politics fate, uh, one of those 
hunger strikers is now a sitting alderman. Jeanette Taylor represents the 20th Ward. So essentially, Lori Lightfoot will be asking her to take this vote after she sort of rose to prominence based on that sort of direct action that that really complicated the mayor's uh, the previous mayor's ability to sort of get buy-in for that property tax hike, which was one of the reasons we saw his approval ratings nosedive. Well, we should say, you know, Mayor Lightfoot is, is preparing to mark her first 100 days in office. She's going to give her first state of the city address next week. Bill, what's your sense of, of how these first 100 days have been for the mayor? My sense is they've been pretty quiet. And I think that's reflective of her getting in there and, and, and trying to assess the situation, right? And politicians always say, well, I got to get in there, actually see the numbers and see, see, what, see what the problem is. And there is a certain amount of truth to that. And I think uh, with the gravity of, of the budget situation, it, it probably makes sense that she should be behind the scenes doing a lot of work with that regard. I think what we're going to see with these town halls and with the budget is the honeymoon's over. The 100 days is the honeymoon. It's coming to an end. Time to you know make some difficult decisions. I would suspect that these town halls, the, the nature of them is uh, it's a venue for people who feel like they're not being heard to be heard. Even though it's only been 100 days, the homeless advocates are going to, where's my funding for this? You know, all these groups that have been looking for uh, Lori Lightfoot as this change agent and they don't have any uh, patience many times, they're going to wonder where theirs is in the classic Chicago way. So I think it's going to be a a difficult couple of months, both in Springfield and uh, at home. And then lining up a budget vote with a lot of newcomers who uh, uh, ran on a bit of a different platform than we've seen in the past. This is the Friday News Roundup here on WBEZ. Our panel today includes Bill Ruthhart of the Chicago Tribune, A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business, and Heather Sharon of the Daily Line. A few other stories to know about today. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker has signed legislation to protect undocumented immigrants from eviction and retaliation by landlords. He also signed a bill that mandates a $40,000 minimum salary for Illinois teachers by 2023. And a couple of big national stories have broken in just the last hour or so. China says it will impose retaliatory tariffs on an additional $75 billion worth of U.S. goods. So the trade war continues. And billionaire businessman and philanthropist David Koch has died at the age of 79. Koch was vice president of Koch Industries, the nation's second largest private company. He donated billions to charity and was best known for pumping his vast fortune into libertarian causes, helping to fuel the Tea Party movement and propel Donald Trump to the presidency. I want to turn back to city politics Um, very quickly. Another issue Mayor Lightfoot is under pressure to deliver is on a $15 minimum wage in Chicago by 2021. Uh, Before her budget fight begins, A.D., you were at a presser that some activists, unions, and aldermen held yesterday. Talk about that. Heather was there, too. I Um, was. So one of the things Mayor Lori Lightfoot campaigned on was raising the city's minimum wage to $15 by 2021. That's much faster than the state's rate, which would rise to $15 in 2025. Um, this is kind of part of a, a larger suite of progressive issues that she campaigned on in addition to uh, scheduling certainty, which passed last month in city council. Um, and we saw, like you said, unions, activists, aldermen say, we need we need this now. We need this passed in September. You told us in May it would be September. Uh, Lightfoot has kind of walked that back a little bit in a statement to both Heather and I. They said, we're we want to accomplish this, but in the coming months, um, it's it's difficult. We all know during budget time to try to get other things done. We're having hearings all day long for two weeks at a time, plus all of like these side uh, briefings that aldermen get, negotiations, maybe running back and forth to Springfield. So I can see why aldermen and activists would want to push for this next month. But 
it, it might be a tough ask. And Heather, talk Absolutely. a little bit more about this transition that's happened in the first 100 days. Bill said that uh, Mayor Lightfoot has been pretty quiet. She did start off really announcing her presence, though, in city council, passing ethics reform. So so there was a lot that was happening at the beginning. Talk about where we are now. Absolutely. I, I don't think you can talk about Lightfoot's first 100 days without talking about Ed Burke, who, of course, is facing a 14-count indictment of uh, corruption and racketeering. And she has really used that indictment to force through ethics reforms that people have literally been trying to do since 2015. And that includes a ban on aldermen working as attorneys in an adverse uh, appearance with the city. So that would mean that Ed Burke potentially could no longer represent property owners who want a reduction in their property taxes, uh, which is really going to be a sea change. But she has used that to sort of be able to sort of make good on her main campaign promise to bring in the light and push through those reforms. That push is just starting. There's going to be hearings uh, in September on a proposal to strengthen the inspector general's power to, to audit and to release documents to the public, which, of course, was very much an issue in the Laquan McDonald scandal. Uh, so this is continuing. And I think that as the budget gets tough, I would expect her to focus on that because that was really sort of the center of her mayoral campaign and one that she can point to have, have accomplished something during the, the 100-day honeymoon. Well, let's turn now to elect. Election news. The upcoming 2020 elections aren't until next year, of course, but there's been some action lately. AD, there's a lot of focus on the presidential race right now, but I want you to bring us up to speed on what's happening locally. Oh, it's going to be a great 2020. <laughs> I'm so excited for this primary. So a lot of focus on law and order. So Cook County State's attorney, Kim Fox, is up for re-election. She has a, a primary challenge and also Republican challengers on the other side. Um, Circuit Court Clerk Dorothy Brown announced that she was stepping down after 20 years in office. There are now five people running to succeed her. Um, we had the Cook County Democratic Party endorse Mike Cabanargi for that role, but the other four challengers in the race saying, I don't care if you didn't endorse me, I'm still in. That's going to be an expensive race. We've already seen the caps come off in that race. We've seen them come off in the state's attorney's race. Not on the ballot, but still kind of uh, percolating. Chief Judge Timothy Evans is up for re-election amongst judges in September. There's like a lot of old enemies running. There's a lot of really important issues that need to be hashed out. Reform in the circuit court clerk's office has been something that's been talked about for years and years. I'm curious to see if, if that's the message or if it's a classic message of Cook County Dems back establishment candidate versus outside reformers. But tracking the money, I think, is going to be a really important aspect of this upcoming March primary. And what are you all thinking? I mean, in terms of money and how much money we're seeing go into these local races? Well, it's huge. There have been seven candidates who have already blown the caps, which is a huge increase from this time four years ago. One of those races is the Illinois Supreme Court race, where the only African-American judge, judge, P. Scott Neville, is up for a full 10-year term. And he got the backing of the Cook County Democratic Party. So 10 years ago, I could confidently say, okay, that's it. We're done. He's going to get a 10-year term. That is no longer the case. Um, Nathaniel House, who has the backing of Jan Schakowsky and Secretary of State Jesse Weiss, says he'll stay in the race. Um, And it's really going to be a big battle. And of course, there's appellate court judge Jesse Reyes, who says, look, there are no Latinos on the Illinois Supreme Court. Why does that have to be an African-American seat? So we're really seeing sort of just a lot of, you know, attention on these normally down-ballot races that will have a huge impact going forward. Well, speaking of 2020 elections, Democratic presidential hopeful and South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg stopped by Bronzeville this week for a campaign rally. Here's a bit of Buttigieg from Tuesday night. 
Help us include those who are not here today. Find people who don't look like most of the people in this room and let them know they have the chance not just to support this campaign, but to shape it. Now, Bill, you covered this event. What did you take away from it? It was quite a scene. I've, I've been to, so this is at the Harold Washington Cultural Center down there at 47th and MLK. And I've been to a few rallies there. And it's typically a place where you hold a rally to uh, turn out the vote in the African-American community. Saw Tony Preckwinkle do one there this last campaign. Rahm Emanuel's done some there. With Buttigieg, this is a grassroots event, which for him means it's $25 ahead to get in the door for most folks, and they get a chance to hear about his campaign and, and are one of those low-dollar donors that contribute. Of course, probably not very familiar in the African-American community, and what happened was there was 1,000 people lined up to get in, and it was literally like 99% white folks. And so the you saw people in the neighborhood just bewildered, like, what is going on here? Uh, and... Some of this was just organizing, right? The the event, when you signed up, you didn't know where it was until after you gave to the campaign. You know, it wasn't the kind of event where you're just, it's free admission and you're trying to get people from the neighborhood. So, but what it did is it exasperated a problem he already has with this campaign and a narrative that's going on nationally, which is he's having trouble getting support from African-Americans. In South Carolina, which is among the early states has the largest share of black voters, about 60%, he's pulled, you know, very low, 1%, 0%. So this kind of drew more attention to that. And even uh, Reverend Chris Harris, who was, who was called on to introduce him, was you know cracking jokes about how, you know, uh, can you guys dance like the folks in Bronzeville can? Get, get up and, you know, you, Mayor Pete, you brought a lot of uh, white folks to the black neighborhood. We need to get some more black faces in here next time. I mean, it was really uh, something. So you, you hear in that, in that clip, Buttigieg, at the very end of the event, at least nodding to the notion and trying to, I guess, put a spin on it a little bit there and say, hey, uh, increase the size of the tent of this campaign. Well, and how many presidential campaigns are going to need to make a stop in Chicago? I'm, I'm curious what you think, A.D. Plenty. We yeah. have a lot of money here. Illinois is a reli- pretty reliably blue state, ultimately, but it's going to be a big fundraising stop for folks. That's definitely true. And so you'll see people sometimes hold a public event while they're here for a fundraiser. That was, Buttigieg had a high-dollar fundraiser right before that event. Our primaries... Uh, March 17th, uh, St. Patrick's Day. That'll be interesting. Oh, gosh. Um, I didn't know that. That's and, amazing. Uh, so we'll see how many candidates are in the race by then. I think end of February, March. I actually see more like real campaigning. This was kind of a, a quick event to grab some dollars. So. Well, well, in other campaign news, former Chicago area Congressman Joe Walsh is considering a run for president as a Republican challenger against incumbent President Donald Trump. What do we know about him and and about the potential here? Well, I've been reminding people that on the day before Election Day in 2016, Joe Walsh tweeted, on November 8th, I'm voting for Donald Trump, and November 9th, if he loses, I'm grabbing my musket. So this is a just sea change of Joe Walsh. And um, I have heard from a number of people who see it as nothing more than opportunistic. He was a radio host whose ratings were declining. And this is getting him on all the shows and everybody's talking about Joe Walsh. And I would I, I don't think that there's a possibility that he could actually make the Republican ballot in any number of states that could actually significantly damage the president's reelection. Uh, but it is one of those, you know, turns of the the presidential election soap opera that I don't think any of us would have predicted. 
It's the Friday News Roundup when we break down some of the biggest local news stories of the week. Our panel today includes Heather Sharon of the Daily Line, A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business, and Bill Ruthhart of the Chicago Tribune. A couple of other stories to know about today. Nearly three dozen people have sued the operator of suburban medical equipment cleaning plant Sterigenics. They say fumes from the plant have caused them health problems. And officials are warning of life-threatening conditions along Lake Michigan today in Lake and Cook counties in Illinois and Lake and Porter counties in Indiana. That's after a 35-year-old man died yesterday after being swept into the lake at 31st Street Beach. Winds could cause six-foot waves today. Police and the Chicago Park District say folks should monitor flags posted at each beach in Chicago. Red flags on the beaches indicate swimming is prohibited. Uh, Let's take a quick turn to state politics. Some of the biggest news out of Springfield on Tuesday, Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan released a report by the former state inspector general, and it lays out the details of rampant sexual harassment and bullying in the Speaker's office. Heather, remind us about the main findings of this report. Well, it essentially lays most of the blame on Tim Mapes, who was not only the clerk of the House, which was a very powerful position, but he also served as Madigan's chief of staff. And the report basically says that because he had so much power, he was basically allowed to bully and harass uh, without consequence. And uh, Mike Madigan was not really sort of alleged to have done anything wrong, but he was faulted for sort of allowing this situation to fester in a car, and he promised that he would do a better job. But, you know, some of the tales were just, you know, heartrending. And, you know, you had women at the Capitol warning each other, you know, stay away from that guy, stay away from this guy. Uh, Maybe you want to wear a fake wedding ring, even if you're not married, so as to sort of divert attention. And, uh, you know, I don't know a single woman who covers politics or who works in politics who was shocked or surprised by that. We have all dealt with that. Um, and the question really is, will anything change? Uh, what's what's interesting is, and I will credit Hannah Meisel of the Daily Line with breaking the news that uh, the uh, uh, Illinois Department of Veterans Affairs, basically the second in command there, also was alleged to have used racially insensitive ra- language and harassed his subordinates and was actually picked to be promoted even after those allegations had come forward. So I don't think anybody can say that this situation in Madigan's office or in the House was an isolated incident. This is clearly something that uh, is... Not, if not pervasive, very, very common. Well, and Tim Mapes defended himself after the report was released. He said in part, quote, I always acted in good faith and for the benefit of the people of the state of Illinois. But A.D., one of the things the report reveals is that there was a feeling that people didn't have someone to go to if bullying was happening, if sexual harassment was happening. They couldn't get to Speaker Madigan to say, hey, there's a problem. Right. Uh, a lot of these problems occur because of a concentration of power. And Tim Mapes had a ton of power and made his subordinates feel as though they were dispensable. Um, and one one thing that Maggie Hickey pointed out in the report was that many of the people that worked for Madigan never had face-to-face time with Madigan, and that Tim Mapes was the one person you could go through to get to Madigan, and that if he didn't want to hear what you were saying, Madigan wouldn't hear it either. So part of the reforms is breaking up some of the functions in Madigan's office. They have a new ethics officer, general counsel, and then there are also you know, a suite of statewide changes that are coming for sexual harassment and the way that these occurrences are investigated in the state house specifically. Well, Governor Pritzker was reluctant to criticize Speaker Madigan, but said he's counting on him and other legislative leaders to create safeguards against sexual harassment in Springfield. Here's a bit of his reaction to the report. What came through that report was a special kind of 
discrimination or a special kind of harassment and intimidation from Tim Mapes. You know, you can't put people in positions of power who hold those kinds of views and who are and who clearly had that those views for many years, according to the report. Bill, your thoughts? Well, they clearly have the fall guy, right? Let's point the finger at, at the guy who worked for the speaker and not the speaker and himself. And already gone and has been gone for more than a year. Right. We see that a lot in politics. Um, I, I think the, the real question, I don't think the, the report was terribly surprising. Some of the details were certainly uh, eye-raising, you know, wearing fake wedding rings and things of that nature. I think the real question is, how do they restructure this so this environment doesn't exist anymore? How can you make a complaint? How can you, um, you know, feel like you can make a complaint without losing your job, that kind of that kind of uh, environment. I think that's the real question moving forward. I think it also speaks to Speaker Madigan and how he's set up his office for, for decades, right? He's very careful. The fewer interactions, the fewer people he has with, the, the safer, I think, he he feels about things. And so I think if there's a kind of a breakdown in how uh, that office is run, that, that could be interesting as well. But you know, Mapes is the fall guy, and it's interesting it gets released in the summer when people may not be paying that much attention, and I think they're hoping to put the lid on it and move on. And, of course, it comes as we, you know, I believe that the federal investigations are swirling around Mike Madigan. We know that a number of his aides and close confidants have been raided by the FBI, and nobody's really sure exactly what the the federal prosecutors are looking at or what they're not and whether it could actually reach Madigan or whether it will stop short of Madigan as it has in the past. But, you know, for somebody who's been basically, you know, Speaker of the House for essentially people's entire lives, this is perhaps the most serious threat threat to Mike Madigan's really, un, you know, unquestioned control of the Illinois State House, and whether it will actually result in changes, I think, is the, the $64,000 question. Well, just as we wrap up here, I'd love to hear the stories or you'll be following or just keeping an eye on in the coming weeks, A.D.? So next week is 100 Days Week, State of the City Week. There will be, a, I'm sure, a bunch of think pieces about how Lori Lightfoot's first 100 days went and how the next three years will go. I'm going to be fascinated to see what kind of solution she proposes in this this budget address. Heather? I expect that we will see more progressive groups realizing that they have got to get out front on this budget. I think that the yesterday's rally for the, the minimum wage increase um, was perhaps a wake-up call of people who were sort of enjoying perhaps the dog days of, of August and now realize that if they're going to make a push for whatever progressive program that's going to cost the city money, that the, the time is a ticket. Bill, what about you? Uh, locally, I'll, I'll be interested to see how Lightfoot rolls out the budget situation. Uh, it's going to be a difficult task for her. Me personally, I'm detailed of the 2020 presidential race. So uh, the September debate, uh, how many folks are on the stage and are we finally going to see this thing narrowed down to a more manageable number? That's Bill Ruthhart of the Chicago Tribune, Heather Sharon of the Daily Line, and A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business. Thanks for listening to the show. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and leave us a rating. It helps other people find us. Another great way to get in touch is by leaving us a voicemail. You can give us a call with any feedback you have. Leave us a message at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. I'm Jen White. Let's talk again soon.
If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.